The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Hear God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for not just your teaching but for your work on our behalf. Thank you that you have died for a sinful people to make us new. Thank you that we come this morning not just worshiping an insightful scribe, but Lord of all. And so, Lord, we ask now that as we conclude this series we would hear your piercing words. We would not just be, we pray, hearers of the word. Lord, change us by your word. Help us to be doers. Help us to be builders on the rock, not hearers who build on the sand. Oh Lord, protect us, we pray in you, in your teaching, in your words, in your blood. We pray that you would lead us. We're thankful for your faithfulness to us. We ask that you would continue to do that and show your grace to us now, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are ready to obey. Thank you that we're finishing this series at the last Sunday of 2018. We pray that it would be a a turning point for us. We look forward to seeing what you're going to do, Lord, this coming year. We love you and we need you. Pray that you would come in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. D.L. Moody once said that Our great problem is that of trafficking in unlived truth. Unlived truth. Sometimes we know the truth. We know what it is. We know what we ought to do. We know what we want to do. But we never actually get around to making the changes that we know need to be made. Maybe that's particularly on your mind as we're two days away from a new year. This morning, someone said that my goal for 2018 is to accomplish the goals of 20 
or my goal for 2019 is to accomplish my goals of 2018, which I should have done in 2017 because I promised them in 2016 and planned them in 2015. We can live and traffic an unlived truth, but more seriously, we can do that as it relates to the words of God. Soren Kierkegaard, I don't endorse all of his theology, but he, he expressed that truth in a parable that I thought was helpful. It's called Duckland. He said, It was Sunday morning and all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they comfortably squatted. And when all were settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to his pulpit, opened the duck Bible and read, Ducks, you have wings. And with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was a marvelous, elevating duck scripture. And thus all the ducks quacked their ascent with a hearty amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled home. Unchanged, not flying. I think about the men of Acts 17. You remember that, that section um, in Acts the, the men would gather regularly to, to hear or say something new. And after Paul preached to them the word of God, about the one true God, the, the coming judgment of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is what we read in Acts 17, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. It's interesting. We'll hear you again about this. I'll let you decide which of those responses is worse. There is an implicit danger in hearing the word of God. For once we hear it, we are accountable to it. Once we hear it, we'll be judged by how we respond to it. We can't say we didn't know. We'll either apply what we have heard or we will not. We will build our lives on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, or we will trust something else. This is the fork in the road that we all must take, and likely today you've taken it. Which path are you on? The good news is it's not too late to, to turn around if you notice that you're on the wrong path. It's not too late to be encouraged to stay the course if you're getting weary walking on the right path. This is the point of application that Jesus brings us to as he closes the best sermon ever preached. In closing, we, we learn something very important about Jesus. The authority that he spoke with. It brings us to another fork in the road. We, we must decide, is he... Is he the Son of God or a crazy person? And we must understand, after that, what he's calling his disciples to. And then finally, we must look at in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we doing it? Or are we being like those church ducks? Will we hear of the new life found in Christ alone only to walk away unchanged and set in our own ways? What foundation will we build our lives on? And will that foundation hold when the storms of life come and when we ultimately face God in the end? Will we traffic in lived or unlived truth? 
So here's the main point of the sermon this morning. Build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and you will find eternal safety. If you don't, you won't. Build your life on Jesus. And I just want to ask you three questions this morning that will help guide us through our passage, but also hopefully probe into the foundations of your heart. First, let me ask you, and and for you, encourage you to ask yourself to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Who did he say that he was? That matters for how you answer the, the second two questions, how you answer the first question. Second question, what has Jesus said? What has Jesus said? And here particularly I mean in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Depending on who Jesus is, it either doesn't matter to you or it matters everything to you, what he said. And then finally, third question, what will you do? What will you do? How will you respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Will will you ignore him? Or will you follow him? Beloved, we must decide if we are going to be merely a Bible-believing church, which is good and I'm glad that we are, we want to be, or are we going to be a Bible-living church that lives out the, 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 the commands and the word of God Our first task is to hear and and learn something about the the preacher of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's question number one. These are questions are outlined there in your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. Number one, who is Jesus? Turn back with me just for a minute back to chapter five where Colin was reading. Chapter five, verse one. I want you to see kind of these bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is there in chapter five. Verse 1, we read, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then now flip to the back of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the sermon, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Those phrases, kind of up and down, Uh, the mountain would push Matthew's readers to remember how Moses went up to Mount Sinai and received God's law and then came down to give it to the people. So more than just kind of historical bookends, there's a connection that Matthew wants us to make between Jesus and Moses. And if you remember, Moses was seen not just as a lawgiver, but as a redeemer, the one that God would use to bring the people out of slavery. And the Lord promised that one day another exodus, a new exodus would take place led by a greater Moses. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen. And then God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Matthew's saying, this is that new prophet, that new Moses. He's leading a new exodus. Listen to him. This greater Moses teaches God's words, not as a, a new law, 
but as the true heart of the law. Not the way that it had been twisted around by the, by the Pharisees. He is, in fact, the fulfillment of the law in himself. He taught like no one else had ever taught with authority. So look at chapter 7, verse 28. Again, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the, the, the crowds were astonished, literally dumbfounded by his teaching. And one author says, 2,000 years later, we're still astonished by it. They were astonished by the power of his teaching, the actual words that he was saying, the way they resonated and depicted real life and cut to their hearts. But they're also astonished because he taught in a way that was different from the scribes with an authority of his own. The scribes were trained to be faithful to their own tradition, their own teachers, and, and they evolved into quoting other famous rabbis and other sources from their, for their statements. And so the Talmud notes that Rabbi Hillel lectured on a controversial topic one day all day long, but his followers didn't accept his teaching until he cited the authority of his predecessors, those who he got the teaching from. Just notice that is not the way it is with Jesus as we study this, this, this passage. F.F. Bruce says that the scribes spoke by authority. Jesus spoke with authority. The clearest example is that phrase he would, he would use, you have heard it was said, but I say unto you. I say unto you. Even the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Because there are no footnotes at the bottom of Jesus' sermon. He is the authority. He spoke with authority that had, not, that had been previously reserved for God alone. He, he stood forth as a legislator, not a, not a mere commentator. Think about what he said about his own authority just as a teacher. He was so certain about the truth of his teaching, he said that wisdom and folly will be assessed on how you respond to his teaching. Imagine if I said that or someone else sort of said that about their own teaching. Build your life on my teaching and you'll be wise. And you'll be a fool if you don't. Jesus claimed unrivaled supremacy in all of his teaching. He also claimed authority as the Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament promises. How else would we understand when, when he says everything in the law and the prophets prophesied and taught are going to be fulfilled in him? Jesus claimed himself to be more himself than a prophet, but to be Lord. So he demands personal allegiance from everyone to him. Friends, that is different than any other teacher in teaching. I demand not just that you respond to my teaching, but that you are personally devoted to me forever. His expectation is not just that we would absorb his teaching, but that we would be his followers. We could say more. Jesus shows authority as judge throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Authority as the Son of God, and indeed as God himself. He has authority because he is the author of all of life. 
And it's not not clear to you yet from just Matthew 5 to 7, after Jesus raised from the dead, he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And so this just begs the question that each of us needs to answer. What will we do with the Jesus of the Bible? Clearly the New Testament presents him And he presents himself as the one with all authority, the God-man come to earth to save sinners. He himself without sin, perfect in obedience and love. And as you just read the Gospels, you will see this consistent theme that Jesus was like no one else. And, And the reality is he cannot be taken lightly. In other words, you can't say that he was a good teacher unless you're willing to say that all that he taught was actually true. And if all that he taught was actually true, then he was much, much more than a good teacher. He was God in the flesh. Friend, have you reckoned with the authority of Jesus? How does that authority show up in your life? The authority of Almighty Jesus. Either what Jesus says is true, or he's suffering from what C.S. Lewis called rampant megalomania. There is no middle ground. If you're someone here this morning that's looking into who Jesus is and trying to think about who he is, I'm really glad that you're doing that. Let me encourage you to continue to do that. I would encourage you to read through the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read through one or more of those Gospels. Read through them with someone else. Um, I would bet my bottom dollar that anyone in this room who's a member of our church would be willing to read through a gospel with you and talk with you about it, including me. And I think that when you do that, you'll be amazed. You'll be dumbfounded by what you see about Jesus. But I want you to know that's not the goal, to be amazed, to be dumbfounded. These crowds that were amazed here in chapter 7 will cry for his crucifixion in chapter 27. Jesus is after something more than mere amazement that would come and go. It needs to lead to allegiance, to faith and repentance, to a changed life. How will you respond to Jesus? First, you have to answer the question of his identity. Who is he? Second, you need to think through what he actually taught. So that's our second question this morning. Number two, what has Jesus said? And here I'm thinking mainly about the Sermon on the Mount. So I take what Jesus says there in verse 24 as a reference to what he said kind of just recently in that paragraph right before, and then to the entirety of the sermon. So verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. These words. Of course, Jesus said more than what's listed here in the Sermon on the Mount and more that's even recorded in the Gospels. But what we do have in these three chapters and what we've been studying for the last few months could be summarized as his description of true discipleship. And Jesus begins that in chapter 5. Look there again in chapter 5 and, and, and think with me about that character sketch of a true disciple as he teaches through those Beatitudes. Remember that Beatitude word comes from the Latin beatus, meaning happy or blessed. But the word in the actual text 
text carries this idea of being a recipient of God's grace, his unmerited favor. And these little short statements describe not only what a person is, but what a person is becoming. And and all those descriptions are rooted in Christ and rooted in his work for his people. So you won't ever be poor in spirit or a mourner or meek or merciful or, or hungering and thirsting for righteousness until you understand and feel the weight of your sin. That reality humbles the sinner. The discrepancy between what the Word of God says and who Jesus is and who I am humbles us. It makes us hunger and thirst for more to to grow into what God would have us to be. We mourn over our sin. And at the same time, we marvel that we have been shown mercy by Jesus. Mourning and marveling. That's That's a normal day for a Christian. And we marvel over his mercy, therefore we show mercy to others. And we desire with all of our heart to grow in godliness. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the pure in heart. That that, that reminds us that we've been given a new heart. And yet we still long not to actually be divided in our allegiance, to be unstained by the world and by our own sin, to not be double-minded, to not be cynical about spiritual things, to not be overly skeptical, but to be pure in heart that we might truly see God at work in our lives and in the world right now and then one day face to face. The pure in heart will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers because we've experienced peace with God through Christ. Even in persecution and in opposition, we're reminded that Jesus was first persecuted and he will sustain us. But Jesus is making a people to be like himself, that we would witness to his goodness, to his character, to his grace. That people, he says there in chapter 5, verse 13, are to be like purifying salt to a decaying world and life-giving light to evil darkness around us. For therefore, we must be pure salt and strive for purity in, in all of our, of our lives, not being contaminated by the world and being an unhindered light, not hiding under a basket of self-centeredness. Friends, this is who we are. Salt and light, sent here to assault the effects of sin in the world today for God's glory and by his power. That's what we're, we're called to. Putting God's righteousness on display. Hear that probing and clear statement in chapter 5, verse 20, that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus gives multiple examples of what this looks like kind of with these illustrations of external obedience, all done kind of with a heart of internal emptiness. 
And friends, we live in America, in America that preaches an American gospel that says don't kill anyone, protect your property, don't cheat on your wife, fight for your rights, hang around with good people who look like you, work for a good retirement and a nice house, and if you're busy, too busy for for other things, minor things like prayer, it's okay. And so obedience, Jesus said, is more than not committing big sins. It's rooted in our heart and attitude to our neighbor. The root of murder is our anger, and it must be addressed. And we must be reconciled to our brother. Must be. The root of adultery is our lust, and we must aggressively put it to death daily. Heaven and hell are at stake. Divorce is not a matter of mere paperwork. It's a result of a hard heart. Hiding deceit behind contractual words and oaths and promises will not do for a disciple. Our word must be trusted. We must have integrity. Disciples have laid down all of our rights. Therefore, we don't retaliate, but respond in love to those who oppose us. We love our enemies and pray for them. It's the internal work, the secret work of prayer and giving and fasting that honors God, not an outward show. Disciples are not hypocrites. We are in the world, but not of the world. And therefore, our treasures reflect that. They're not of this world, but in heaven. We know that we can't serve two gods. We will either serve God or money. We don't need to be anxious about our lives because we have a heavenly Father that allows all, that gives us all that we would need. If he feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, will he not feed and clothe us? We can trust him. We can pray fervently and expectantly and he will not give us a snake when we ask for a fish or a stone when we ask for bread. And since we have such a loving, caring, sovereign Father, we can radically love others and not judge them. Look first to our own shortcomings before pointing out the sins of others. In short, we treat others the way we would want to be treated. And we do unto others what God would have us to do unto them. Friends, all this together, Jesus says, is a journey of discipleship down a narrow path. When everyone else is on the interstate, along the way, we're going to be assaulted, he says, by false teachers. But you'll recognize them by their fruits. Many will be deceived by practicing a mere verbal form of their faith or putting their trust in their works more than Jesus. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing and goats in sheep's clothing. But the sheep will hear Jesus' voice and follow him. That's what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you could sum it up in one verse, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word translated perfect, as you remember, is that word teleos, And it has that connotation of completion or wholeness. So Jesus calling his disciples, you and I, not to perfection in that we never sin and that we never mess up, 
and that we're never unfaithful, but to a wholehearted, fully embodied obedience. As he's changing us at the heart level, he's not just calling for a difference in our behavior. And we will not do this perfectly in this life. Jesus doesn't expect that. In fact, he builds in, even to his model prayer, a confession of sin and asking for forgiveness. And calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why would we do that if we're already perfect in our behavior and our life now? He calls us to a new covenant, wholehearted holiness, brought about by God's Spirit in us because we've been given this new heart and the Spirit living inside of us. And so this means more than just hearing the words of Jesus, but practicing them as well from the heart. In fact, it means building our lives on them, on Him. Friends, are we doing that? That leads us to our last question. Number three, what will you do? What will you do? Notice the emphasis again, not just on hearing, but doing in verse 24, chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What will we do with the words of Jesus, is what he asks. He only gives those who are hearers of his words two options. We will either obey his words or we will not. So this parable pictures for us that truth. In it, we find two builders using two different foundations with two drastically different outcomes. So let's consider them together and make some observations. Just beginning here with the wise builder there in verse 25. And the rain fell. This is on the wise man's house who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, Jesus says, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I want you to notice the universal scope, first, of what Jesus says. He's speaking to everyone. He repeats it from verse 25, again in verse 26. There are no exceptions to this story. Your life is in this parable. You're either the wise man or the fool. You are building something. And the interesting thing about the parable is that the true identity of the builder isn't revealed immediately. It doesn't become clear until the storm hits. It seems both structures are outwardly initially sound. Their appearances are beautiful. No one really knows that a problem even exists until the storm hits. The storm reveals the main theme of the parable, and that's the theme of foundation. Foundations are unseen when the structure is complete. What we see when we look at a house are the windows and the walls and the roof and the nice tile flooring, the fresh paint. But the most important part of the house, none of those things, it's the foundation. (laughs) And that's unseen. That's underneath 
all the other things, all the exterior. And you could say it's untested in good weather. Everything looks fine as long as the weather's good. But this parable shows that foundations are revealed by storms. And I just want you to notice, again, the exact same storm hits both houses. Neither house is able to avoid the storm. Jesus never says that if you're wise and follow him, you can avoid the storm. You can avoid difficulty. No, the rains and the wind and the flood come to both houses. And friends, we need to remember that as Christians. Following Jesus is not a ticket out of suffering or hardships or pain. Following Jesus is an assurance that we'll be able to stand through the storm. Because our foundation is secure. Not because of who we are, but because of who our foundation is. Perhaps today you find yourself maybe right now in the midst of a, of a kind of a storm. If you're a believer, I want to encourage you to take heart. That no matter the intensity of it, the unknown kind of reality of it, the rock is going to hold you. You aren't going anywhere apart from God's good and sovereign hand. He has you. No matter how strong the storm. In fact, it is actually revealing to you more of who he is. But these storms likely point to something more than just the normal trials and tribulation in our life. If you remember the paragraph just before this one, it describes judgment. Remember that Jesus is going to give out to those who profess his name on the last day? Well, well, that paragraph is connected to this one by the word therefore. You see it there in verse 24. If you have the ESV, it just comes across as then. But the word is therefore. So the theme is likely still judgment, final judgment. And that shouldn't surprise us because in the Bible, often God's wrath is described as a terrible, destructive storm. Just think about Noah and the ark. The judgment of God coming on the entire earth through a flood. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel all describe God's judgment as a violent storm. And, and we don't have to imagine what a storm is like here in Houston. We can, we can understand and remember uh, recently what storms are like. And how we feel in these storms. Helpless, afraid, totally vulnerable, exposed. Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 13, Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash. Kind of looks good on the exterior. And bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Friends, the point of this parable is very simple. Wise people prepare themselves to, to face the approaching storm of divine judgment by hearing and doing Jesus' words, by trusting in Jesus, by building their lives on the rock. The fool in this story could have been in church hearing the words of Jesus. He heard them just like the wise man did, but he did not build on them. He built on something else. He built on sand, and he trusted something else. 
And when the storms of life came, his structure failed. And when the storms of God's final judgment come, the fall will be terrible. As it says here, catastrophic. Great was its fall. And it doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't likely only affect the builder. That phrase in verse 24 and 26, his house, I just think that's interesting that this builder is perhaps building his own house. This is not a home that he's building for someone else, a stranger or a client. It's intended for the builder and his own family. A builder would be expected to invest special care in this construction of his own home. But the foolish builder carelessly constructs his home on the poorest of foundations. And therefore the collapse is terrible. Not only does it reduce his house to rubble, but it claims the life of everyone else who lived in it. As one author put it, the roof that was trusted to protect the inhabitants from the rain and the walls that were trusted to protect them from wind would snap their bones and crush their skulls as they toppled to the ground. Dear friend, are you prepared for the storm of God's judgment? Are you preparing those that you love most for God's judgment? Those that God has placed in your life, Are you building on the rock or on sand? You are hearing. Are you doing? This parable must have struck a chord with James. Listen to what James says in James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So dear Christian brother, sister, this morning, we often ask, hey, how is your Bible reading going? Another good question to ask would be, have you been doing, applying what you've been reading? How's it been at work in your life? How's it been changing you? How are you different from what you're hearing in the sermons week in and week out? What is God doing in you that's, that's different maybe this year than, than last year? The Puritan Thomas Brooks warned, he said, Reader, remember this, if thy knowledge do not affect thy heart, it will at last with a witness afflict thy heart. If it do not now endear Christ to thee, it will at last provoke Christ the more against thee. Where does there need to be some foundation work in your life? Perhaps the, this coming year, as you're thinking about and evaluating things, Where has the slab begun to sort of slip over into the sand? Where does Jesus' word need to level and repair the cracks? And for some of us, maybe there needs to be a total demolition and a new foundation laid completely. We've had some foundation work on our house and in our game room, if you've been to our house, 
Um, it's really clear that that game room foundation was laid improperly. Half of it was original, half of it was added on by, by another owner. And so no matter what we do in terms of trying to brace it up, add more concrete, uh, change the carpet or the floor type, no matter what we do, it still sinks. And if you walk over kind of at the end, it, it just, it's literally a sinkhole towards that end. And it is a foundation issue. There's nothing that will ultimately fix it until we go in and tear it out and lay a new foundation. Uh, I had the foundation guy come, and I said, hey man, can you fix this? And he says, well, I cannot make chicken soup out of chicken rhymes with soup. You know what I'm saying? And that's what it is. And some of us need a completely new foundation and need to be building on Christ and Christ alone. If you're here and you're, and you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, and I've heard this before, and I had a really close relative who told me this often, that, that Christianity was a bit of a crutch for people. And she would say, I faced the storms of life on my own and may have made me stronger. There have been lots of difficulty and suffering in my life, and I've made it. And I'm out on the other end a better person for it kind of an American thing to say. And, I, and I, I just want to say that's great. I think that's good. I have known many resilient non-Christians, and I think that's part of being made in, made in the image of God, having that sense of perseverance. But I do want to ask and point you to this final storm. More than just the, the, the trials that you face in this life, the storm of God's judgment. Notice just Jesus There's lots of ways you could conclude a sermon. Jesus concludes this sermon on the note of judgment, on the note of a house falling down. I just think that's a reminder for us, something we should think about. You won't be able to hide. You won't be able to to, to be tough enough to withstand this kind of storm from Almighty God. So it's not enough to, to study and then applaud the words of Jesus. Or even to be amazed and impressed by the words of Jesus, you must either completely ignore him as a lunatic or give your life to him as Lord and Savior and God. So, what will you do with this authoritative word from Jesus? As you continue to study the Gospels, you'll see that this teacher goes on to actually practice what he preaches. He didn't just talk about loving his enemies. He actually died for his enemies. He prayed for those that nailed him to that wooden cross. He submitted himself to the Father's will. And his death, long promised in the scriptures, purchased a people for himself. When he died, he paid a penalty. The penalty that we deserve for our sin against God. God poured out the storm of his wrath on Jesus. He was destroyed that we would be secured. Jesus took the flood of God's wrath in our place. And this is always his plan. In fact, at one point he said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he did just that. After three days he rose from the grave. And now he he offers us peace and forgiveness and protection from God's wrath. He offers us hope and true life. 
and is only found in him. David described this peace long before it was realized by his greater son in Psalm 27. Friends, now on this side of the cross, we can read these verses, sing these verses as worship to our rock and redeemer. Listen to Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. In whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Friend, don't let that be an unlived truth in your life. Let that be a living truth. Don't let another day go by without truthfully answering those questions for yourself. Who is Jesus? What did he say? And what will I do? Friends, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Don't just hear it. Join us as a church as we seek to prayerfully live it out together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a sure and steady anchor. Thank you that you are a shelter in the storm. Thank you that you took the brunt of the wrath that we deserve. And Lord, I pray that there would not be one person in this room that would endure that wrath and hell. But by your Spirit, you would open our eyes and draw us to you. Draw us to safety in the rock. And Lord, I pray that we would build our lives upon the rock. Lord, give us the sure and steady foundation May we not be like those in 1 Corinthians that on the last day, everything they had built was burned because it was built with worldly things. Lord, help us to build with precious things that your word has given us to build with. And pray that you would encourage us as a congregation, especially as we look into this new year. Lord, help us to enter this time with joy and a great expectation, a knowledge of a heavenly Father that loves us and has promised to provide for us, has always provided for us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do it and that you would make us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God.
Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.